Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's simple. I'm raising money to hire Hillary Clinton to record an audiobook of the Mueller report. I have the Mueller report. All right, let me start it. I'll be, I'll be happy Please to. Please do it. Sure. The investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency. A couple notes? Yeah. Like you mean it. The investigation established that feel the it. Russian government Secretary received. Clinton, feel it. Feel it. Just imagine like you have a history with this. Okay. The investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome and that the campaign expected it would benefit electorally. The president slumped back in his chair and said, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm Hello and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. This week on the show is a very funny man who I've loved watching since he first joined The Daily Show as a correspondent back in 2014, Jordan Klepper. I was a big fan of his show, The Opposition, where Jordan played a sort of alt-right conspiracy theorist. If Stephen Colbert was doing an homage to Bill O'Reilly on The Colbert Report, then this was Jordan Klepper's version of InfoWars madman Alex Jones. Comedy Central sadly canceled that show last summer, but now he's back with a new series on the network, simply titled Klepper. And it's a pretty big change for him. Instead of going into full-on irony, this new documentary-style show is often really earnest, even sweet at times something I did not expect from Klepper, who spent years perfecting his arrogant newsman persona. Anyway, I think it's a fascinating turn in his career and really wanted to talk to him all about it. This is The Last Laugh, and here's me with Jordan Klepper. So yeah, uh, thanks for, for coming out and, and doing this. Or I, I came out to you in New York, so, uh, so yeah. we're, we're here in New York, and it's a premiere week for, for Klepper. And I keep seeing um, your mugshot everywhere I go in, in the city, and I'm sure you, you're seeing that too. So w- what, what's that like? It's a weird sensation. <laughs> I think I, I joke, but I think there's truth in just how cheap Comedy Central is, is that they've, they've had the folks, uh, the city workers in Atlanta, essentially do promotion for them. <laughs> so <laughs> it's strange. It's, it's always fun to see promotion around town with whatever show you're working on. It's a little bit surreal when it's, a capturing a moment of duress and then plastered all around town. Yeah, I mean, so for people who, who don't know, uh, you got some unexpected publicity uh, a few months back um, when you were shooting this this new show um, for Comedy Central, and uh, you you were shooting a piece and, and got arrested. So can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what happened? Yeah, it, I was I was covering these students at Freedom University, which is a freedom school based. Uh, it's for undocumented students and DACA students who are trying to go to public colleges in Georgia, uh, but cannot because Georgia. Uh, is one of the most um, punitive states as far as our rights go for undocumented uh, people, and the students uh, suffer because of that. And they've opened up this school, which is an underground university because they face threats from hate groups, and they meet and they study. People volunteer their time. Teachers from other colleges come to, to volunteer their time. And I was really taken by their cause, and they were protesting uh, to go to public college, like most other students with DACA or undocumented students can in other states. And faith leaders came forward, teachers came forward, other members of the community, and they stood up, and I decided to stand up with them. And when you do that in Georgia, you can get arrested. And and they put me in the, the clink, I believe is what you call it. And yeah. so I spent uh, 12 righteous hours in the clink. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I, I was glad to do it. It was in, in filming this show, I'm following a lot of different activist movements and we try, we try to get up alongside it, but not always become a part of it. Mm-hmm. And this was one where like, I'd been consistently told to like weaponize your privilege and be aware of the fact that you can't divorce the idea of having a television show from doing a television show. And this was a situation where like these kids, uh, needed a voice, a voice that they don't have and kind of had the opportunity to 
to do it and to get publicity for the show. You know, it was really important. <laughs> it was like we need to get a great poster, so let's let's do it in Atlanta. Yeah, I'm curious what you were thinking in the moment when they're when they're you know arresting you. Are you thinking? Uh, I'm worried that I'm being arrested or, oh, this is going to, this is going to make a great episode. Yeah. You know, I'd like to say that I'm always thinking about, you know, the cause and the things I care about, but no, I'm, I'm mostly hollow inside and it's just about, <laughs> can I get retweets because of it? Um, so yeah, so the, the mugshot is being used as a, a promotional uh, tool, um, everywhere. Uh, how did you uh, how did you approach your mugshot? What, were, what was going through your head when they when <laughs> when you realized that? Because you know, I mean, with celebrities, these mugshots, people end up seeing them, whether you plaster them around town or not. It's my Sinatra moment. I have to be ready for it. You know, he, it's Johnny Cash, it's Sinatra, <laughs> it's Tim Allen at the Kalamazoo Airport. You have to prep for that face. I think you sit there's so much of jail is downtime where they move you around from cell to cell. You you give the same piece of information repeatedly over the course of 12 hours there. But I know there's a mugshot coming, and I'm almost looking forward to it. Cause it's like, it's a thing to do. Mm-hmm. Get me in front of that camera. <laughs> Maybe it, it speaks to my vain personality. Yeah. <laughs> there's a camera here, right? I was promised a camera. <laughs> Uh, but it is funny when you get sent over there to do it. I, I got my fingerprints taken, and the woman doing it was lovely. And she called me baby. And then I, she immediately caught herself and realized that she can call other people who have been arrested baby. And I saw her do it for everybody else who comes over. She's like, come here, baby. I mean, uh, sir. I mean, you need give me your hand. Give me your hand. So she was consistently dealing with the informality of, of uh, jail. But yeah, then I, then I knew it was my moment, and they won't let you smile. But really, like, if you try to smile, they say they say no smile. Yeah, do not smile. This is not a bit. This is not a joke. And that I knew. And so I gave my best fierce look. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was also a fairly earnest. I think at that point I'd been in jail for eight hours. I was fairly hungry. My <laughs> mind was consistently doing battle thinking like, how do you continue to not defecate for yet another potentially four hours? Mm-hmm. I can't do that in public with all these people around here. So like I'm I'm dealing with some stuff in that photo. And I heard you were you were briefly taken out of the uh, general general pop. Is that right? I was. I was. They they came and they found me and they asked if I had, uh, if I was on television. And I said yes. And they moved me to a, a separate cell. And then thirty to forty five minutes later, they put me right back in. So <laughs> whatever whatever credibility I had or what have you, they googled the success of my recent uh, recent shows and they realized <laughs> to send him back with everybody else. And then everyone knew you had a TV show at that point. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> they they kind of just let everyone know with, and then sent you right back this in. This is the mark over here. This yeah. guy. Yeah. Focus on this guy. Um. So, uh, and was there any uh, was there any response uh, from Comedy Central, positive or negative, about the about the arrest? Did they? Uh, they were supportive what I heard. I mean, it sounded like I think they got a phone call that, hey, Jordan's in, in jail. We might need to do something about this. Uh, when, I, when I got out and was able to talk to people about it, they, were, they, were, they understood what the cause was mm-hmm. and what the situation was. And so uh, a big thumbs up. I think they were glad it wasn't for prostitution or something terrible. Yeah. And in a way, you're you're getting arrested in place of these undocumented students who can't get ar- can't afford to to get arrested, can't afford to protest on their own in that way, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, in in all seriousness, like that was that, that was the whole point. These students do they uh, they learn a lot about the history of Atlanta, the the history of the the civil rights era, and the ways in which direct actions can be effective. And one of the things they did during the uh, the era of civil rights and up through this day is like the people who have the ability to get arrested in place of those who don't have that ability, step up. They draw attention to it. That's why a lot of faith leaders are there, because they know they will probably be treated better if they have a collar on compared to an undocumented student who might get thrown out of this country or not be treated as as kindly as those folks. So, yeah, it is sort of an opportunity of, like, you're getting arrested because other people aren't so lucky. And this was the the only time you got arrested during the filming of the show, but I, I can't imagine that there there weren't other technically illegal things that that went down in the filming of the show. No technically, uh... no technically illegal. <laughs> <laughs> there were definitely times we felt like we were towing some lines. I yeah. think we, you know, I went down to the bayou and was with pipeline protesters mm-hmm. whose plan was to go lock themselves to the pipeline to stop work. And laws have actually been changed and were changed recently when we went down there to to make it a, a federal crime to lock yourself up. And so they were risking arrest and potentially arrest for a very long period of time there. And they were challenging me to also get arrested, um, which I thought was very mean. Um, I was there to watch people put their lives on the line. And in and of itself, I think that's a, a, a thing that deserves a lot of credit, or at least I told them that. Uh, 
but that was a situation that that went that went awry. The boat sank. We ended up uh, scattering over to the side, hanging out, essentially hiding out from police boats because they were afraid. We were on legal land at the time, but they were afraid police would uh, would misconstrue some of their actions, or oh, essentially they were afraid they were going to get roughed up by the police. So, so at that point, yeah, we were we were in doing this series, we were ducking the cops more often than I. I probably imagined. Had you had experience with that um, at the Daily Show ever? Were there were there times that you were thinking of, like that you remembered, uh, where you were doing similar uh, types of dangerous uh, activities? Not quite that extreme. I feel with the Daily Show, they were much more controlled environments. There were times where I was at Trump rallies or what have you, where things felt tense. Mm-hmm. It felt like I was maybe not in the most welcome place. I've done stuff in you know with with certain episodes based around gun gun control and what have you, where it feels a little perilous hanging out with the militia in the middle of the woods. Things can get a little dicey later mm-hmm. at night. As far as uh, towing the legal line, this was the closest I, I got to it and then stepped over it. So as we're speaking now, the show is about to premiere. But one uh, thing that people got to see recently from uh, from you was a video that you taped with uh, Hillary and Bill Clinton. Um, how did is that is that part of the show? And how did that come? How did that come about? That just ends up being a, a teaser for the show. Mm-hmm. I, I was asked to uh, moderate a conversation with the Clintons down in D.C., which I did uh, a week and a half ago. And in that discussion, they threw out the idea of potentially doing a video that would air live. And I pitched back at them this idea based on the, the tweets Hillary Clinton had done that week, trying to garner some some funds for the three historically black churches that burned down in Louisiana. And so I was like, well, this was a, a lovely success story on the Internet. Maybe you guys could help counsel me and where I could invest some of my mo- money. And they were game. And we didn't really know how that would all play out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd never done essentially a bit meet activism with a president slash secretary of state before. And they really... They walked on in. I met them a little bit beforehand, and then they jumped into essentially this exercise and I think found some catharsis in reading the Mueller report and talking about tiny saxophones. Yeah, it was almost like you were doing an improv scene with, with the Clintons. It was. Honestly, <laughs> it's it's amazing playing status games with the president of the United States. <laughs> I think it's something you don't usually get to do. It ended up being kind of wonderful. I think it was it put everybody at ease in a situation that can be full of tension. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure for them, sitting down with a comedian and a camera crew comes with a certain amount of anxiety. I think for me, sitting down with a president and a secretary of state also comes with anxiety. The fact that we had a task, again, I'm becoming very much improv teacher. It's like, mm-hmm. because you have a task, everybody's energy gets focused on that. And then we all kind of enjoyed doing that task. And I think President Clinton enjoyed what I could kind of poke back at him and see like Secretary Clinton uh, laugh at that and and vice versa. So mm-hmm. it was a it was a unique morning to say the least. Yeah, and so part of it was that you had her read the the Mueller report or sections of the of the Mueller report, and so what did, did she hesitate at all to do that or was she she was game from from the jump? Game from the jump. I I. I you know, uh, floated that idea out there. She she jumped on it, enjoyed it, wanted to read more. <laughs> Even as we left, she was like, <laughs> let me know if you hear anything more about the audiobook. I'd totally do it. President Clinton at the time, because it was based off a of GoFundMe that wanted to raise money for her to do it, he was all about the details. He kept, he kept pushing back <laughs> on her like, before you say yes, you know, be careful saying yes. What does that mean? What is this person agreeing with? And she was just like, no, I, I'd do it. I'm, I'm, I'm game. <laughs> that would be a long audiobook. Uh, the, <laughs> I was, the, I was the, trying to think through it. I was like, that is, by the time you finish it, I don't know what the market. We are going to be on to Mueller report part two by that time. Yeah, I think I think it could get more people to listen though and to to read it, which could be which could be a good thing. I think I saw that this morning. Only like three percent of the population has read it, so yeah, audiobook is a, a way to bump that up at least to to four. <laughs> Coming up, Jordan Klepper opens up about how it felt when Comedy Central canceled the opposition. So uh, I do want to talk about um, you know this this evolution in your uh, in your career here uh, from from the Daily Show and then the opposition and now to Klepper. Um, so can you can you kind of walk through uh, what happened there with the decision to to end the the opposition and and launch this new show? Um, were you were you disappointed when that happened or or excited or kind of how did that all go yeah, down? I, I kind of had all the feels. It was. You know, the network sort of came to us, and the network was a big supporter of the opposition. And 
and they were sort of like, you know, hey, here's the deal. We think 1130 is crowded. We like the work that's going on at the opposition here. We feel there's a lot of people focusing on Trump and focusing on 1130 type tweets day in and day out. We'd love to switch this to a weekly. and We'd love to put you back in the field. And yeah, that was mi- mixed. I, I had really dual emotions at that moment. Mm-hmm. I, I was really proud of the opposition and loved the team that we put together. It's really fun to be part of a, a show that is day in and day out trying to make sense of the news. And getting to play a character like that is is really fun to filter comedy through it. You can be bigger and stranger in ways that maybe I normally wouldn't. At the same time, I also got it. I think like it was exhausting feeling like we're consistently chasing the Trump train mm-hmm. in a market that, that is it's so full. And that's why trying to do it from a, a more satirical point of view and playing a character was our, our swing at standing out. But yeah, every day felt like we're constantly behind the eight ball. And so... The idea of going out in the field, I missed that. It was an exciting challenge. And also this idea, like, we all kind of started talking about what that would feel like. And I think it was like, if, if we are reading the uh, the tea leaves, I think people people are less excited about that, that, that irony. They want some authenticity. Mm-hmm. They want people being people. We have a lot of uh, fakeness out there. Where is that reality? So we said at the top, we're like, let's talk about, let's do a field piece show. But that it's not overly ironic, overly distant, overly sarcastic, that it's more authentic. What does that feel like? Yeah, the the tone of the show not only feels different from um, the opposition, but also even from some of the Daily Show field pieces, which are obviously much shorter. Don't you know, you kind of have to get to the punch faster and you're given this you have more room in this show to to have these kind of more heartfelt, uh, sincere moments, which obviously was kind of the opposite of what you were doing on the opposition. Yeah. So were you were you excited to kind of leave that that character behind and and go down this more earnest uh, route? I think for me as a human, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think the idea of like, can I authentically go into these places, find some humor, uh, get my point of view out there, and interact with them? Uh, that I, that I like. I think that gave us such a chance to like try to find empathy and work that into pieces, try to find humanity. Mm-hmm. Like, great, let's trust that we can tell these stories without the crutch of irony. At the same time, I love that crutch of irony. And and maybe crutch is even the wrong word. I would say the tool. I mm-hmm. think the the tool set of going out for a Daily Show piece where you are ironic, you're playing, you're playing dumb and leaving a gap in between what you believe and what that person knows, and they fill it in in a way that allows you to create really fun... Uh, satirical comedy uh it was scary to say we couldn't do that and as we started going out we felt where you felt naked out there Mm -hmm. but also reading the room there were situations one of our first shoots we went down and we were following these deported veterans who were in tijuana all they wanted to do was come back to their family in america i go down to what is called the bunker where a dozen vets are in this bunker they haven't seen their family some in decades and all they want to do is talk about how much they miss home and you walk into that bunker and you don't want to make a joke. Yeah. And I think in the old days, you'd walk in, you make your two ironic jokes, and then it's it's quippy, it's funny, we get the point across. This one was like, ah, I'm doing a, a, a show about these deported vets. There's no space for humor there. Can we find ways to make this episode funny, but still keep the integrity and the dignity of the people that we're covering? Yeah. Do you feel like that means a lot of the comedy is found in the edit or in the when you're sort of putting the episode together later? It's both. I think we... Um, I think we we go out with the same, similar intentions, but have to stay open and find ways in which to contextualize, be funny in the moment. Also, like it's little things like you know the Daily Show. Even if somebody laughs at one of your jokes in the moment, you you, you don't like that. You want there to be even an edited tension of mm-hmm. like th- I'm saying this to somebody with a straight face, even if they understand I'm making a dumb joke in that room. In this. We want to leave that in there. If I make a joke out in the field, the people are smart enough that they get at making that joke out there. But we would bring stuff back in the edit. And yeah, then it's, you know, with all of these shows, you build it up in pre-production, go on out where you tear it down because it's not what you expect. And then you bring it on back and you build it up again and then tear it down because it's not what is actually there. And I think in the edit, we have the luxury that we didn't have at The Daily Show where you walk out with a Daily Show piece, and you pretty much know the story you're going to tell. You film it for a day and a half. You come back, and you tell basically that story. It's 80% of what you walked out the door with. In this thing, we walk on out with an assumption of the story, but we let them tell it. And so you come back. You're like, all right, what do we actually get? 
now can we add some comedy in the way in which we tell the story in the edit? So yeah, there was there was a it was it was a constant learning process of where we added comedy and where we let just the story tell itself. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there there is this challenge of of making comedy out of these uplifting uh, topics, but you're also sort of you, you have the, the the danger element, which adds a lot of comedy too. Um, so, I mean, how do, how does that play into it in terms of you know you're choosing to to focus on people who are who are really making a positive impact and and so when you when you were deciding to do that were you were you worried uh, is this going to are we going to be able to make this funny constantly yeah <laughs> i think a big thing was though again if we go back to this improv world of it all like mm-hmm. it, it it's about action right. i think if i'm sitting down with people who are just telling good stories it can be more boring we did that sometimes with the daily show or the opposition but you have comedic irony so you can lob things at them for this because it's more of a doc we need to put me in situations where it's fish out of water. We need mm-hmm. to put me in situations where I would experience stuff. Literally put me in a boat. Literally put me in a ring. Like put me in these class with these students. Let's put me in a car going to a place where we don't know where we're going. Like in that experience, there's going to be humor there. And we quickly found out like, oh, the, the humor in this story is a guy who is me, who is wants to do right, but likes living in New York wants to be a part of some sort of change, but change is hard. And mm-hmm. so guess what it looks like when you have to sleep outdoors and uh, and hop in boats? You're going to bitch most of the time. And hopefully we're not the we're not punching down for the people who are trying something. We're just showing the reality of uh, the difficulty. So it's like wherever we could paint me into a corner or put me in an experience, then we were in a good spot for, for comedy. Where we were, where we weren't was when we were just sitting down with people and having them tell tell the story. You were obviously playing a character on on the opposition, and to some degree, you were playing a character on the Daily Show as well. Even though both of those characters had your name, this person in this show still has your name. Is it you, or is it? Do you feel like you are still playing a character? I think it's me. I'm. I think I'm as much me as I've ever been out there. Yeah. I think there's. It's me who's an awareness of a camera who is out there, and I think I make jokes, but I think. I'm hoping the audience understands, like, sometimes I will make a joke where I'm making the joke about me being naive, but hopefully there's a wink to the audience who knows that that is, <laughs> I'm aware of that joke that I'm making. Again, and then at this point, I'm like, oh, my God, we're killing comedy by just <laughs> overly dissecting. Who am I here? Yeah, what am I yeah. doing here? Um, but, yes, I think that was the goal of this. It's like I want to earnestly go to places that I care about, I'm interested in, I'm curious about place me in there so that I can actually feel what that experience looks like and then trust that myself and a great team of editors and producers can articulate that experience in a comedic way afterwards. I'm curious what you, uh, about the the improv um, background and how that plays into this type of uh, work and type of comedy where you're out there in the real world interacting with real people. I mean, you started out at, at Second City, right? And then and also um, spent some time at UCB, which are both obviously you know known for improv. How much do you think those experiences uh, play into to what you're doing now? Uh, the, a ton. I think, you know, I've been spending the last two months in an edit putting all of this together. And editing is an art unto itself. But we're essentially taking found footage. Mm-hmm. But when you're making a show like this, you have to create the found footage. And how do you do that? You go out there and you improvise. You know, you have intention. You have uh, You put yourself in places where you might find something interesting. But essentially what improv gives you is the ability to keep going, to keep searching, and also to listen. And so when you're out in the field, it's all improvisation. You know, we we have some things we're prepped with, but especially with this show. In The Daily Show, you'd walk down with a bunch of questions, some potential jokes you think you might get to, and then you riff. With this one, I go down with some questions and some potential funny things, but then I put it away and we just see what happens. And for yeah. the most part, it is improv. And it, I think we realized it should be. The things that are making the final cuts are the earnest moments between us all there. Um, but it's fun. I, it's, I, I think that it's where I feel most comfortable is, is knowing that we're going to find something and letting some of that uncertainty give you some of the tension you need to get there. Um, can you, can you talk more a little bit about, um, where you, where you came from in that improv world and what those, uh, you know, early days were like when you uh, when you were starting out in, in Chicago, right? Yeah, so I, I came to Chicago from Kalamazoo where I did improv in college, and I, I wanted to learn at Second City. I wanted to learn at Improv Olympic, and I got into that that world of uh, deep into long-form Chicago-style improvisation. 
Uh, it led me to do fun, weird improv at Improv Olympic. Let me to do sketch comedy at Second City where I toured. I taught at both places, and that was kind of my life for a long time in Chicago with a little bit of writing stuff here and there, some performance stuff. I ended up moving to New York and getting connected with the, the Upright Citizens Brigade where I also taught and performed for, for years. And um, it's, always, it's, it's also where you find community. And so for me, mm -hmm. it was always the most creative place to be, the way I like to create, and even in creating something like The Opposition, we definitely built our writer's room around sort of an improv mentality. And what's fun about Late Night and what I immediately realized in doing The Daily Show is like Late Night has to be a mix of improv mind and stand-up mind mm -hmm. where you have to be – an improv mind is great in that it listens and it builds and it the best idea wins because you're all working on it, which you need at the beginning of the day for any late night show. Um, and you're not precious, which is what – with The Daily Show, you can't be precious. You can't hold on your idea today. You have to trust that you have a show tomorrow, and you do. Uh, but you also need a stand-up mindset who is able to uh, finally pick that best idea, polish that idea, and then deliver in a way that is clean and crisp. And so it was always fun to walk into those rooms, and as I got to build a room with the opposition, it's like, oh, how do we use both of these mindsets so we have the brainstormers and the editors that they can kind of work in tandem uh, and, and be a good office? Because improv people are good people and stand-up people are usually dicks so how do you how do you also combine those two things how do you warm the stand-up people to to let them understand that they're a good person inside they can let somebody in they don't have to do it alone and so yeah i like to think i never drop the element of being a teacher and a, a unifier when it comes mm -hmm. to putting these shows together and then is is ucb what kind of led you to the the daily show or how did that all uh, happen it came about um I started doing a, I did a web series with my wife, Laura Gray, called Engaged, which was about us being engaged and planning weddings and what have you. And I did a couple one-off videos with her about kind of our life. And The Daily Show saw those videos, got, uh, liked it. They were looking to replace John Oliver, and they called myself and my wife in to audition for The Daily Show to send in a tape. They liked that and then brought us in to read with John and from there eventually getting the job. And you got the job, and, and your and your wife uh, didn't get the job. So was that uh, was that awkward? It was terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was. Uh, it's 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 showbiz, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It was because my wife I met at Second City. Um, we toured together. She's a comedian, a writer, is incredibly talented, is more talented than me. We were collaborators, and she got very close to SNL many times. And like that's that's what this business is. You get really close, and then you watch other people succeed, and. You're still hustling to even, you know, make ends meet day to day. And this was one of those opportunities that, like, it can change everything if somebody like that says yes. Mm -hmm. And we both get really close. And to watch basically a flip of a coin and one person gets it and the other person is still back to the grind the next day. Yeah, it's I mean, I think it's it's what's so muddy about this whole industry. And I think it we learned a lot from it. Like it can it can just change like that. But that doesn't mean other people aren't still hustling, and it doesn't like it, it can as quick as it can change. It can change the other way too, and so yeah, it it was it it sucked. It took a while for us to come mm. to grips with uh, accepting success and try to utilize that. Yeah, and then she did become a citizen journalist on uh, on the opposition. She did, yeah. So we got to work again together at the opposition, which was great. I mean, we we would collaborate. She helped write on my gun special as well. Mm -hmm. And so I got to be on camera with the opposition and just, I mean, I think with all of this stuff, you find collaborators and people who are talented and Chicago's full of them. New York is full of them. And, you know, when you get an opportunity to hire a few of those people on board, it's, it's, it's probably the most fun thing you get to do with having a little bit of success. It occurred to me that you, you, you had this kind of publicity bump um, from the, from the arrest for Klepper. And you also had uh, one very early on. I don't, I'm not actually sure whether it was before you started or, or maybe the day you started when uh, Alex Jones um, gave you a, a shout out uh, on the opposition. So what was that? Can you can you uh, explain what happened and, and, and what was that like? Yeah, like I mean, I think Alex Jones became aware of what we were doing with the show and would occasionally engage with it, as would his fans. They, they, <laughs> oh, they yeah? love to go online and come at you. Um, I think I, I can't remember what it was that set him off, but he did a whole rant about it. Uh, the big joke that he had was that uh, nobody could remember my name, which is fair. I get it. It's good comedy bit. So I was Kepler, and he did a giant rant on on Jordan Kepler. 
I, I can't remember some of the things that he called me. They were lovely. I mean, he he is he is many things. One of them is creative when it comes to naming, yeah, um, and and <laughs> beliefs and fear mongering. Creative at all of those elements. Uh, so he like because he also has to fill four hours of content every day, and that's that's part of the problem. If the days were shorter and our quest for content wasn't so uh, we weren't so thirsty, we probably wouldn't have. The- There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss life is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Fear-mongering. So much fear-mongering is just filling those spaces. So it gave him air just to go all in on this Jordan Kepler guy because he is the worst and he's this 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 liberal cuck who's coming all at me and all my, my heroic folks here. So, so we, getting to be satirical at that point, got to embrace that and also go at Jordan Kepler from the point of view of Jordan Klepper. This Jordan Kepler guy sounds like a terrible liberal cuck that we should just go all in on. So (laughs) um, I still have it out for that guy. Alex Jones says the things no one else would because only he dares to stoop so brave. (laughs) That's why the establishment comes after him like this. Everyone has it in for Alex Jones. CNN, MSNBC, cholesterol. And now, there's a new narc yapping at his heels. And a few days ago, Jones called him out by name. Jordan Kepler, what's his name? Josh Kepler or something. And I don't just act like cool, like I don't know who he is. I don't watch this Kepler guy. There are 10 shows we know of, Homeland, Kepler, who attack us five nights a week and who say things we never said. Kepler is, is again, like the classic psychopath in school, and he's just lording and enjoying the lies. Kepler is a f- failed actor, so he's just another dropping of Soros. Yeah, you heard that, right? There's a failed actor out there on Comedy Central who's attacking Alex Jones, and his name is Jordan Kepler. <laughs> this guy sounds like a dick. Your, your feud with uh, him on the show kind of culminated with the confrontation between him and uh, Kobe uh, Libby. Yeah. One of your, another of your uh, citizen journalists, which I, uh, that was a remarkable um, uh, clip. That, uh, Kobe is, and Kobe appears actually on uh, Klepper Show in one of the episodes oh, as nice. well. He, uh, kind of an incredible moment. We knew we might be able to run into Alex Jones. And uh, the thing that stands out to me from that moment is, uh, Kobe just essentially echoed everything he said back to him because Alex Jones loves to get on his high horse and just spew the same bullshit Mm -hmm. over and over again. And I think the thing that you can do to defeat Alex Jones is just repeat it back to him. If he has to (laughs) hear the stuff that he spews, like that's how you shut that guy down. Yeah, after all your, uh, you know, run-ins with him and and just the way that you kind of used him as a as a target in some sense on that show, what what did you make of all the um, deplatforming that that happened? I think you know, since where he's been removed from all these uh, social media uh, platforms. It's a wild discussion right now. I just read an article this morning talking about how InfoWars essentially this week has just been parroted by uh, President Trump. The fact that he's retweeting Paul Joseph Watson, Mm -hmm. um, other members. uh, He retweeted InfoWars video this week. Like, it's shocking to see, like, we, we already started to see as we were building the opposition, like, the Alex Jones ideas infiltrating uh, the, the right's talking points. But to actually see him retweet that is, it's, it's gotten too close right now. I think, and the deplatforming argument, oftentimes <laughs> the president is the most articulate guy about that. I think you have to own the things that you say. And when you do spew hate speech on a private platform and it does cause people to stalk outside of Sandy Hook, families, victim families uh, are are getting bullied by these people because of the hate speech. Like, yeah, there's going to be consequences. I think 
I, I'm I'm all right with that. Yeah, I think a lot of people had a lot of satisfaction uh, watching his uh, deposition video where he kind of got broken down a little bit. Did you uh, did you get a chance to see any of that? I caught a little bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think it's it's amazing when, you know, you have to swear upon a Bible and you have to admit to everybody that, like, I do kind of play a character out mm-hmm. here. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's something everybody sees, but it, it's nice to actually see somebody have to uh, <laughs> have to admit that in a public forum. Now, whether or not that that sticks for the people who have who have put such faith into him, I don't know. But yeah, you can't spew that much hate into the world without some of it coming back at you. Yeah. Coming up, Jordan Klepper explains the difference between working under John Stewart and Trevor Noah at The Daily Show. So you know. Talking about playing a character, you know, you you were playing this character on on the opposition and 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 you know sustaining it for for as long as you could. But then you think about someone like uh, Stephen Colbert, who played that character for I think nine years on the Colbert Report. Um, did that did doing it yourself give you sort of a newfound uh, uh, respect or admiration for what he what he was able to do on that show? Sure, I mean, you know, Stephen's incredible with that, and the Colbert Report was such a great show. The the ability to live in that world and sustain that for so long is uh, is, is a pretty amazing feat. I felt myself uh, just both inundated by the news and living in the toxicity of the mm. far right world was it was tough. When when I switched over to working on Klepper, it was nice to unplug yeah. one from just the day in and day out, but two from just the, like the the far right. And you know, we were watching Infowars and reading Breitbart every day, but also checking in on the Tuckers and you know and the Hannitys and what have you. And I think like to take a break from that because it's also not surprising every day in a day out. I think the thing that became surprising was how open and free they felt with uh, pushing that envelope and going farther and farther. But once you get used to the fact that there are no more boundaries, then it just becomes something that just sucks at your soul. And so uh, (laughs) I don't know how he, he kept it up for so long, but kudos. Yeah, and it must also be encouraging for you to see him make that transition to being himself, you know, parallel in a way to what you're doing now. Um, and you know, in the same, you know, for him, it was, I think it was hard at first to figure out who am I after this nine years of playing this, this character. So do you feel some of that as well? Like looking at trying to, trying to find that persona that is you. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing. I will say, um, yeah, I think we're all trying to come to grips with what people are responding most to right now. And I Mm -hmm. think there, a lot of people feel there's a lot of fakeness out there and are responding to authenticity. You know, Stephen did that. I think even Trevor coming into The Daily Show was a shift. Mm-hmm. You know, I came to The Daily Show and, you know, The Daily Show continued to evolve as I was even there. And the role of correspondence and the style of the show and even the role of John had kind of evolved over the 15 years that he was there. But there was still a formality to it and an archness that was satirizing you know, uh, news institutions and the media. And Trevor kind of comes in, and Trevor has a new take on things, but also his aesthetic is one in which he doesn't want to pretend to, he doesn't want to live in the world of, like, faux news bravado. And what people respond to with him is, like, um, he's this guy who's pretty open about his points of view. And so it was interesting seeing that happen. And also the correspondence that uh, Trevor brought on, like um, Roy, Desi, and Ronnie, uh, uh we're still playing with the tropes of The Daily Show, but the role of the correspondent was starting to evolve as well. And Trevor's interest, too, like, was to bring on uh, stand-ups to kind of do things at the desk, more mm-hmm. like Lewis Black and less like playing a role like maybe John Hodgman was. Yeah. So, so even while I was there, I started watching, you know, people responding to less of this, um, this mask that uh, comedians wear and more to who they are underneath. And, yeah, I mean, there's, I've always liked the mask. And mm-hmm. improv, it's fun to put on something to filter it through. You get to play bigger. You get to be more of a dick than you are. You get to play dumber in a way that gives you some more agility. So um, it's been a challenge to drop some of those those old hang-ups, but it's, it's, been, it's been a fun challenge to embrace and see what's on the other side of it. Yeah, I mean, you do. You have this interesting uh, place where you're you're one of the few uh, uh, correspondents on The Daily Show who spanned those, those two eras. So, I mean, what was that transition like for you when, when John left and, and Trevor came on? I mean, weird. I didn't have a ton to compare it to. I guess nobody did. You know, I my role with John, I grew up watching The Daily Show for, you know, a decade. And mm. it was such a big break and ability to work under him, watch how he ran a room, 
ran an office. He was very much a mentor and was very open to me and, and taught me so much stuff um, on and off camera. And so when, when he decided to hang it up, you know, it was it kind of shook the foundations of people who became so used to this institution there. And beyond it just being like a cultural institution, it's a place where so many people had worked for 10 to 15 years, and this was their day in and day out. And so Trevor coming in shook those things up. Uh, but it was really what was really fun about it was I had a good relationship with Trevor the few times he had been on the show, and he was very open and kind. You know, a lot of people would have come in and ripped that show apart and replaced everybody, and there's that tension was there whenever anybody was going to come in. Mm-hmm. And Trevor came in. He was very open to people. Him and I hit it off immediately. We started doing promos before the show ever started and just had a good rapport. We could improvise well together. I think I had a pretty clear archetype that he could play against, and he was like needing somebody who'd been around a little bit uh, to kind of figure out some of those ropes. And so it was it was really nice to suddenly move into a world where it felt like the guy hosting the show was somebody I was collaborating with. Not that I wasn't with John, but that was John Stewart's show. I was yeah. I was happy to be aboard. And this was very much Trevor's show as well, but like Trevor would come in and we could start to experiment, start to play. And so it was a, it was a nice chance for me to kind of get a, a little kick in the pants like, "All right, now you're now you're a senior um, and the new teacher is the, a cool <laughs> a cool senior who's now running this whole ship like how can you help define what he wants it to be? But also, to Trevor's credit, he was like, I want to help you get on to that next thing. So start thinking about that as well. And that's where even conversations started to happen about, like, great, if I was to host another show, what would that look like? Um, it's been fascinating to watch The Daily Show kind of evolve and become its own thing, reflective of where we are right now. Yeah, I think it does have that. It does have a little bit more of that sincerity. I mean, it John Stewart obviously could be very sincere and did a lot of a lot of serious moments on the show as well, but now we see you know with Trevor doing those, especially the between the scenes stuff that he does, um, where he is kind of just speaking from the heart. Mm-hmm. Maybe that is something that people are craving more now. I love his between the scenes stuff. I feel like that's that's what he came in being great at into a format that was an old school late night format, mm-hmm. which is like over the shoulders, and there's only so much of that you can tweak until it becomes a totally different show and so it's fun that he's found that which is when you sit down with Trevor Noah or you go to one of his stand-up shows the thing that he can do so well that other people cannot do is he is so captivating and can talk for he can give you an eight-minute take that is like thoughtful loving from personal experience and and just feels very real and so I think they've they've, they've found something nice with that. So you mentioned uh, earlier that you uh, grew up in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan um, and you've talked about how you went, uh, you went hunting as a kid, right, with your uh, grandparent, with your grandfather. We, we went out, we went out shooting. My grandpa was a hunter, but he would take me out uh, target shooting. Yeah. Um, so you kind of come from that from that world. Um, do you have uh, Do you have Trump supporters in your family or people that you know from from back home? And and what is what's that like? I do. I think um, the the Trump people I have in my family tend to be less rah-rah Trump and more uh, eye-roll Democrats mm. and then have supported Trump and don't necessarily, again, it's it's what you hear, don't necessarily like, don't like what he's doing on Twitter every day and some of his rhetoric, but like that he's getting things done. Um, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> it is, <laughs> my, my wife also has that in her family and we're on a few, um, we definitely get a few. Uh, we're on some email listservs of what is going on on the far right, and they they don't love the fact that we do liberal comedy yeah. in New York City. Yeah, what uh, what they think of your uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, video? <laughs> that was, honestly, I will say, my wife got a breakdown. She she there's, I mean, I think probably every family has that listserv, and I'm sure the left has it as well of some pretty heinous, wild stuff that uh, are always attacking Hillary, always pro conspiracy theory. And my wife engaged with that uh, a week and a half ago, and she set off a firestorm. You, just, you can't you can't engage back. She sent them a link to a Snopes article, and then <laughs> they set a double leak uh, uh, going at Snopes, and you're like, ah, oh, this is this is this is a mess. <laughs> but they they did send something back, and they were like, you know, we saw we saw that Jordan did a thing with the Clintons. It aired on Fox and Friends. Uh, <laughs> it's good that he's still doing show business. 
which honestly I thought was about the nicest thing. I was like, that's, uh, you know what? Thank you. I'm glad yeah. that you, you are still doing show business. I'm still doing <laughs> show business, which is probably a, a bit of a dig. <laughs> it's like, oh, he's doing, he's still doing the make ups. Good for him. <laughs> and what did, what did Fox and Friends have to say about it? Did you catch that? I or? didn't see the Fox and Friends. I saw that it was brought up on a couple of the other, other uh, late night shows and their opinion shows. I can, I, I know exactly what they said. I'm sure they made fun of Hillary. They talked about how close she was with comedians. I, I, I've I've read that book before. <laughs> um, do you think though that having those people in your family gives you a, a better insight or a better you know because everyone is so much in their bubbles generally that if you don't have that um, you might not know what what those what the other side is is thinking. I think I, I'd like to think that. Um, I mean, I think coming from the Midwest, uh, mm. it, it's not that I have family members who are Trump supporters. You know that that always helps. It's also just <laughs> spending a little bit of time outside of your bubble, wherever your freaking bubble is. Mm-hmm. And as I travel across the country, we all got bubbles. Uh, I think I benefit from the fact that for a long time I've had to – I traveled around. I toured with the Second City forever. I lived in Chicago forever. I bounced around with The Daily Show, bounced around with Opposition, now with this. I think if I if I have anything that uh, – <laughs> if there's a feather in my cap, it is that I, I'm, I've been put in places that – are outside of what we normally talk about on our late night shows. And I think I think that is important because they also don't talk about most of this shit most of the time. Yeah. And doing this show right now, like uh, going to talk to vets about veterans issues, we don't talk about Donald Trump. We don't talk about the Mueller report. Uh, we aren't, they're, they're not reading the Washington Post day in and day out. And I think like understanding where those priorities lie is also a good uh, re, uh, re- configuration for people because it's like oh you might be a trump supporter but if i spend some time with you oh that might be the 12th most interesting thing Mm -hmm. about you when when i hear that you're a trump supporter and i'm in new york that probably is the number one thing oh you're that trump supporter Mm -hmm. and even as we talk about like my family members i kind of i go through it in my head i'm like oh yeah they are but because i know them as three-dimensional people like that's one of the things they do yeah they voted for donald trump but they're also a hunter a big michigan fan the the guy who took me uh, to meet Bo Schembechler when I was a kid, like they're not defined by that one thing, and it's it's refreshing to to be reminded of that. As someone who's who spends a lot of time in the Midwest, do you have any advice for the uh, Democratic candidates who are trying to are going to have to try to win those voters back? Uh, go to Wisconsin, <laughs> definitely go to Wisconsin. I think I, honestly, the twenty twenty is is wild to me. I think the big thing that is a that the Democrats have going for them is. Apathy went Trump's way, and I don't think Trump gets apathy on this next election. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's people who are like, I don't really like Hillary. I don't like Trump, but whatever, I'm not going to vote. I don't think that happens again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really fun to see people like uh, Buttigieg get people excited, at least people on the coast excited. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how that plays nationally. Uh, I, I, my, my advice to them is they are going to care less about the Mueller report than people on the coast do. Mm-hmm. Although my but. But what I want is somebody who thinks uh, the Democrats need to, <laughs> I, I guess, I, I, w- I want Democrats to take a big swing because I think where they get in trouble is playing too much politics. And I think in the Midwest, people don't give a shit about politics. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing for them? Let's focus on those issues. For me, one of the issues is like, I don't care about the politics about are we going to impeach or not impeach. What I do think is if you can make an argument that this guy is threatening constitutional norms, you should you should totally follow up on that. That's your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, your job is also to stop mass shootings in whatever way you potentially can. That's your job. Your job, oh, like people don't have clean water in Flint, Try to fix that. That's your job. I think in the Midwest, people know that is your job. And so if you're spending all your time politicking, that's not going to get you anywhere with people in the Midwest. Do what your job is. And your job might be more extreme than you think. Stop doing press conferences where you're like, well, I need to be careful about this because of the upcoming election. It's like, no, we already we just had an election to yeah. do your job. So do that. Come through on it. And, and, and then we'll show up at the, the ballot boxes for you. So uh, before we uh, start to wrap up here, uh, what I want to do is kind of go through um, some various people who you've worked with at The Daily Show over the years and see if you can tell uh, me one sort of story or memory that comes to mind or maybe even something that you learned uh, from working with them. I didn't learn anything from anybody. Working okay, well, so scrap that, okay. but we'll, we'll, we'll maybe some funny stories about them. <laughs> Great. Uh, so the first one um, is uh, John Stewart, who was your, you know, as you said, your, your mentor when you when you got there. What... When you think about him, what is there something that, that comes to mind? 
Well, he's a man that uh, his go-to bit for me is that I'm way too tall. And so the thing that I will always have with John is that half of our conversation will be him ribbing me (laughs) for my height, which is like a classic old school comedy thing. And my memory of that is like he would would always give me shit about it. (laughs) I would always give him shit. And uh, I remember the last week of shooting, uh, his last week um, uh, on The Daily Show, and he had friends come, and his friends came – uh, and I met them and hung out with them a little bit after the show. And they knew him back in high school days. And I asked them what John was like. And <laughs> and one friend was going through the exact same thing I had gone with. He was like, oh, John was short back in high school. And all he ever did was he he, he learned comedy to just attack people who were taller than him <laughs> because he always had a thing about it. He was like, I've just been dealing with this with forever. I'm like, are you serious? I've been here for a year and a half at every interaction. He's like, it's been going on for decades. So. <laughs> Other than that, he's a, he's a comedic genius, but uh, a little worried about his height. Yeah. Um, so one of our uh, previous guests on this show was uh, Jenna Friedman, and I asked her about uh, to, to tell a story about you, so I figured I might as well ask you to tell a, a story about her. She was a um, uh, field producer on, mm-hmm. on The Daily Show, mm-hmm. who you worked with. Oh, my God, Jenna. Well, I, I want to know what story she told. <laughs> Jenna, is so, Jenna is great and wild and passionate through and through. What was the story we did? We did a story about a toxic Avengers story. Um, that was <laughs> that that had to do with a oh my god i can't remember the details it was a it was a midwestern local politician who went against her party to fight back against uh um basically a chemical company that i think was dumping chemicals into the water at the time and what we thought was so compelling was the fact that like she went against party lines i believe she was a republican who was like but i'm going to stand up for what's right and push back against this so it was this inspiring thing for us, the joke was sort of that, like, oh, it's like a toxic Avengers parody. There's something in the water that has created this terrible rationality and what have you. And Jenna got so into this. And if I recall, we filmed it like a weird B-style movie. And then we needed an extra to run around the Capitol building wearing a mask and a, a pantsuit. And Jenna put on that mask and that pantsuit and ran around uh, <laughs> pretending to be uh, a toxic Avenger of some sort. So I give her credit for going all in. Yeah, that's a good Easter egg for anyone who catches that Look at uh, it. You're going to see there's a, there's a Jenna Freeman cameo. <laughs> um, and we talked a little bit about him, but Stephen Colbert, who I, I don't believe you actually overlapped with at the show, but what did you what did you learn from um, either watching him uh, back in the day or, uh, you know, um, meeting him uh, along the way? You know, I think he, he always, as somebody who I, I, I knew of back in Second City as well, like, he, uh, and not personally, but, would, uh, you know, he had a, quite the history there. He's somebody who's just so curious and thoughtful about the world. I think something him and John both deserve so much credit for, um, they're not just funny people. When I think of them, I don't think of them like, oh, they're great because they're so funny. It's like, I, 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 I think they're great because they're so curious and thoughtful. And they also happen to be really funny, and that is a tool they can wield. But even watching Stephen um, interview, craft arguments, I think the things that always like stand out to me, um, his Biden interview that he did on the show uh, a, a few years back or what have you, had so much heart to it. And to me, that's what always kind of stands out for a lot of those guys who are kind of titans in this this world. It's that they're, they're thoughtful folks first. Um. What about uh, Samantha Bees, who who was there uh, with you as well at the Daily Show? Sam was one of my favorites. She was uh, her office was just one down from me at all times, mm-hmm. and I think like Sam. I think Sam has just always been so fearless. I think um, she she was she was kind of the heart. Like it's it was so funny being in an office next to Sam and Jason, and Jason's like tough guy who wants to bully you while you're there Uh, and Sam is like I'm kind and I understand all of that the thing that stood out to me with Sam because I had been a fan of Sam's forever and she's so talented and the world knows that now and I think the world probably has known that for a while but uh, I think she didn't get enough uh, cred for so long there's so many people who are lauded as Daily Show correspondents and Sam B put in the work and at t- times two uh, compared to anybody else. And I remember she did a piece on The Daily Show when I was there, which was a, um, a performance art dance piece uh, that was based around clips from The Five. Yes, this is actually one of my favorite uh, uh, Samantha Bee performances. It's wonderful, right? <laughs> and I remember they were working on it, and they were like, this is weird, it's crazy, it's outside of what we normally do on this show. And I remember watching her 
do that. And it's like a one take situation. I went down and was there when she did her the not the correspondence uh, night dinner uh, last week. It's all one take, which is like that was also the, the scary thing about John. Another John memory I have is yeah. like, oh, my first day, you go and do it. They're like, oh, no, we usually get in one take, so just do it in one take. <laughs> oh wow! But there's like Sam is able to to be that stone cold killer in the field with the, as a correspondent, and then when they're like, can you do uh, a performance art dance piece uh, that's five <laughs> minutes? Uh, you'll basically do most of the choreography, and can you do it once? And she's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Um, uh, what about uh, Hassan Minaj? Oh, good old Hassan Minaj. I love Hassan. Hassan came in uh, about five months after I was there. The thing that I give him shit about, uh, he's, he's, he's the coolest guy in the office. He's got all his sneakers. And the photo I always send him and text back to him, he would come into meetings um, with fun ideas, big sneakers, and then he'd pull out his phone and I'd give him shit because I was kind of the old... I became the old man at the Daily <laughs> Show quick. I was the young guy and then I became the old man. And I have a picture on my phone that I love. That is a photo behind Hassan's head of him looking through his phone, looking at his shoes. <laughs> and it's like my MC Escher photo of Hassan Minaj that I will I will send to him every now and then. Um, and then, as we said, you were there when uh, Trevor Noah took over. So, uh, are there any other um, stories that stand out uh, about about Trevor? I mean, I think like. I, I said it there, but I will I will expound on it a little bit. Again, I give him credit because, well, I, I I'll say this. He was always super helpful and wanted me to focus on ways in which I could help that show, but also get something, uh, the next thing, which I I give him a lot of credit for. I don't think he didn't have he didn't have to be that magnanimous. But I remember the first night he was on, the Daily Show before he was brought on as a host, and he came in, and, uh, he was brought on to be a, a contributor, where you, which mm-hmm. basically means you come in that day or a day before. And I, th- I think the story was they had talked about maybe him coming on as a correspondent beforehand. He was traveling a lot overseas. John was a fan, so he came in as a contributor. And somebody who's there, and you're like a family, you're always questioning, who is this new person? Mm-hmm. What is their deal? I think I had been there for maybe six months, and so, of course, I'm also nervous. I'm like, is this person going to push me out? Is he going to push me out? He comes in. And uh, he works on this uh, chat, as we called them, with uh, Joe Miller, who was a writer at The Daily Show at the time. She went on to be head writer over at Samantha Bee's show. So Joe and Trevor worked on this um, this chat. And I remember coming in. Uh, I was the correspondent who was eager always to help. So I kind of sat in the room and helped, like, pitch some ideas and watch them do it. And I remember thinking about when I did that. I was like, man, it's so nerve-wracking. It's You're coming out of nowhere into this weird environment, and you're going to sit down. And watching him do it at rehearsal, and he's just ice in his veins. Like I was like, who is this guy? He's <laughs> like an alien. He, he was just so cool and calm. Mm-hmm. I mean this in the nicest way. He he didn't need it. <laughs> and as somebody who needed it, that job, that opportunity to watch somebody else feel like, yeah, I can do this. I'm doing 10 other things. I think like that that was the kind of thing that he could bring when he started hosting because he walked into giant shoes and almost an impossible situation. But the one thing I was confident of was like, man, but that guy has ice in his veins in a way that I have rarely seen in people. <laughs> And again, I think as I got to know him more, I'm sure he would say there were not always ice in his veins. He's just able to able to portray that and move through it. But uh, there, there was a polish that was there right off the bat that I was very impressed by and incredibly jealous of. <laughs> and finally, uh, before we go, uh, I like to finish by asking, what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? It could be a, a recommendation for a, a TV or movie project or just something that happened in your life or, or really, really anything that comes to mind. Uh, I'm just watching Tim Robinson's Netflix show, and I knew Tim a little bit in Chicago, and he's always made me laugh really hard. And his Netflix show has got a lot of very funny, strange, wild moments in it. But the thing that I, I just I couldn't stop giggling at that feels perfect to me, I think it's the first sketch in the whole series where he has an awkward interview that he thinks goes well, and then he goes to leave, and he opens the door in the wrong direction. <laughs> and the guy makes a joke about, like, oh, it goes the other way, and he doubles down because he doesn't want to be seen as wrong, and he just pulls the door until he breaks the hinges. <laughs> to me, <laughs> to me is, like, the most perfect Tim Robinson character there is. It's somebody who's, like, a nice guy who, who got caught doing something stupid but is going to double down and be double stupid because he doesn't want to <laughs> give in. And that it, it, it just made me laugh. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, doing this, and uh, congrats on the new show. Thanks for having me. All right. 
Thank you so much to Jordan Klepper for sitting down with me for today's episode in New York. You can check out his show Klepper Thursday nights at 10.30 p.m. on Comedy Central and catch up on episodes you may have missed on the Comedy Central app. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein at thedailybeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith for Starburns Audio and Scott Porch for Himalaya Media. Special thanks this week to Rachel Jacobs from Audio Boom in New York City for engineering this episode. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. I think we know the rest of the story. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.